0: I'm Alan, and my pronouns are they, them. I'm Kaylee, and my pronouns are she, her. And my name is Danielle. My pronouns are she, her, and you are listening to Target Snarket, a weekly podcast from Broad Digital Consulting. Today, what I want to talk about is uh, really something that I feel like a lot of people are ultimately going to relate to. Uh, before I introduce my guest, I kind of want to like lay out the the land for you here, that uh, a lot of marketers, a lot of business folk, but really just people who use the internet and people who are on social media or sharing information or anything like this uh, have probably run into this, especially in like the last decade, really where you're looking for content for a newsletter. You know, we put together our weekly broadcast newsletter from Broad Digital Consulting, and uh, we try to add in different articles that we think would be really interesting to our audience, only to find out that one of them is behind a paywall. Or you're, you're looking for content to put on your client's social media calendar, you are sharing an article with a friend that you think is really interesting and you want their take on. or you're busy trying to win a Facebook argument with a complete stranger and you want to share the the smoking gun proof of of your rightness and uh, and of course everything is behind a paywall. So that's what I want to talk a little bit about today is journalism, uh, what the state of it is, the the paywalls that we see that continue to irk those of us who, like I said, are in our marketing, looking for curated content everywhere, uh, or even just existing throughout the internet and trying to share that information. I have here with me today, Dave Flomberg, to be able to discuss this a little bit more with us. Dave is the Director of Content for Modus Persona which is a MarTech creative services and strategy agency headquartered in Denver, Colorado. They are also a B Corp, which is a, a hell of an achievement. I will have to have Dave back on to talk about just what that means at some point in time. But I think the extra layer of Dave's very colorful background, <laughs> just I'm sure we'll get into. And what I think makes him uniquely qualified to be able to discuss this topic around journalism Uh, From both a marketing business perspective, as well as an ethical journalistic perspective, is his his really storied background in journalism. Uh, No pun intended, but it was a really good one. So uh, Dave has worked in journalism for most of his career and is a current contributor to Colorado's Yellow Scene magazine, as well as the anti-Semitism columnist for the Colorado Times Recorder. He was also formerly a columnist for the legendary Rocky Mountain News, which I know was my favorite publication early on when I was living in Denver, and is just one casualty of the news crisis that we've been descending into for the better part of the last 15 years. So, Dave, thanks for joining us to talk shit.
1: Thanks for having me, Danielle.
0: (laughs) So we know that the news industry is flailing. It's uh, flailing in the way of being able to support itself financially. Uh, there's a lot of media distrust <laughs> among the people that uh that feels like it's only gotten worse over time. So tell us, in your opinion, can you kind of give us a, a breakdown of like how the hell we got here?
1: Yeah, it's it's been a perfect storm over the last 25 years, honestly. Uh that really started with the news industry, specifically the newspaper industry's inability to pivot when uh, the internet became our main source of uh, consumption for, for media. You know, there's a point where we had over a thousand reporters and journalists covering the front range in Colorado alone uh, between the two major dailies and uh, a few of the others like Westward, et cetera. And over the years with cost cuts, uh, the falling of the Rocky and other things, it's down to under a hundred. That uh, really started because of Craigslist. The profit margin uh, for newspapers was all in their classifieds. You know, display advertising was a, was a good piece, but the real profit margin, the 70, 80% profit margin on those pages, was classified advertising. Wow. Craigslist came along. That was what really uh, kneecapped the entire industry, just right right at the knees just cut it off entirely and they were never able to really rebound uh, as you've seen you know you've seen newspapers all over the country just shutter and uh it's 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 sad it's problematic it's um it's, it the the people who get hurt by that more than anyone is the is the general public and they say all politics is local well, all journalism was local too and the point of journalism is to be the fourth estate right we're supposed to be there to watch uh, to be the watchdogs of 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 those in power, specifically government uh, and and big business, but government for, for sure to start. And uh, you know, there was a point in time when you could walk into any city council meeting or uh, village yeah. elder meeting or whatever the the town municipal governing body was, and there would be at least two or three reporters in that room. That doesn't happen anymore. You know, you may get some at the Denver City Council, but you know, any of the smaller Muni organizations no one's no one's holding people accountable nearly to the extent that they need to be, and what that enables is a whole lot more to happen behind doors that are not being uh, watched um and you know I'm not going to say they're closed doors because people can still go to those meetings and and show up Colorado uh, sure. sunshine law in, ensures that, and most states have something similar, but if no one's there, it's the the effect is the same. the impact is the same and that uh, you see things like how uh, the I-70 uh, dig happened across uh, the, the, the the east-west to corridor downtown, which most, if not all, actual city planners and engineers were like, this is a terrible idea. We shouldn't be doing it this way. But developer interests were able to push through because no one was really holding their feet to the flame until it was well too late. So, just the loss of the economics, just the loss of the financial support in you know the, the turn of the century in 2000 uh, was a huge piece of the, the the kneecapping of the industry, and then uh, the slow, lipping decline over the next 10 years, 15 years, as uh, newspapers um, you know continued to shutter across the com- the country. The the Rocky was shuttered in
0: 2009. Right.
1: And that was a huge loss. It was an enormous loss to Colorado. It was the oldest operating business in Denver. Uh, and the uh, the record of the state, you know, it was 149 years old uh, when the state was 150 years old. It was a uh, just a tremendous, tremendous loss Or when the city was 150 years old. So then, then something else happens. And something okay. else big happens as some newspapers and organizations continued to figure out ways to stay ab- above water and, and figure out how to to navigate in the new world. Steve Bannon and Donald Trump borrowed a very successful uh approach uh that they 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 stole from the uh the Weimar Republic of pre-World War II Germany, you know, prior to the the Nazis uh taking over and which the Nazis uh, adopted and used to full full success in, in their propaganda campaigns. And that was uh, the steady drumbeat of "Lügenpresse," which is German for, for lying press. And wow. that was by design. And Trump has used that forever of just everything you see you can't trust. And you would think that the fake news, fake news, fake news mantra that he employed would only appeal to his demographics and and his constituency. But what happened was it became such a catchphrase that that clicked with so many people that it bled and it bled over the entire spectrum. So it didn't matter where you were right or the left. Basically, you were told you can't believe anything. You can't trust anyone. And both the right and the left are guilty of that, that, no matter what, unless it's cognitive bias, unless they have a belief already, and then there's a source that supports their particular belief, uh, then it's wrong, then it's a lie, then it's fake news. And that's going to be another, that's another extremely powerful and potent coffin nail in, when it comes to uh, American journalism. Uh, and, and one that will have dire consequences as we move forward. I mean, you've seen the death of expertise. You saw COVID become fuck, totally politicized.
0: You can say fucking. It's fine. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, no, it's totally fine. <laughs> We're talking shit here,
1: right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was completely fucking politicized. Sure. <laughs> at, at a period in time where, where we should have been united against a common enemy. And that lasted for about 20 minutes. And then it became uh, a political football. Where, you know, you had consensus of science going one way and then, you know, the splinter factions of people who have other axes to grind or are convinced that everything's a conspiracy against them going another direction and sowing the seeds of doubt for everybody.
0: Sure.
1: So, long story short, that's how we ended up here today. That's sure. how we, we land here.
0: Okay. Now, I, I I want to, you said a lot of things that I honestly, like were were really interesting uh things that I just had never thought about. I know uh obviously, you know, as a millennial, I am predisposed to think about the digital world. Although uh growing up in North Dakota, I and and we've had this conversation about, you know, difference in, in generation and whatnot. Uh growing up in North Dakota, which I think is actually like probably more important than when I was born is where I was born. I I also I remember that analog life so so very vividly. And I remember like, we actually didn't really get the paper at our home because we didn't pay for it, right? And so you got the paper if somebody recycled it or if it was like at school or in the library and thinking about the fact that, you know, you had all of these subscribers. I never really thought about the the advertising revenue, the classifieds revenue that went into... Newspapers, really at all? I just assumed that that the revenue model was really built around subscriber base having more subscriptions, and then the actual ads. You know, the the ads that go into that. And what you're saying is that the classifieds piece was actually the the massive driver, even above the actual like ads inside of newspapers as well.
1: Yep, a hundred percent. The the uh, display advertising was often a tool to uh to create you know longer streams of revenue and it gave them you know there's plenty of of money that came in from that direction but uh from subscriptions the cost of a subscription was to defray the cost of getting you the newspaper that was it so huh. they they used the the price of subscriptions for paying newspaper boys you know to throw sure. the Sure. and that was I it. was
0: a newspaper boy yeah <laughs> yeah I was. Five fucking o'clock in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> it lasted like one summer and I was like, no, this is garbage. I'm never doing this again.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's that's, that's cool.
0: interesting.
1: It was entirely just to defray that cost. And it it actually works in their favor because when you look at the uh, the formulas they were using back in in at that time, distribution numbers was what influenced what they could charge for advertising. So it was in the interest to get the newspaper on the lawn as many people as possible. Sure. And then, you know, then there was a, a period where there were some fudgy numbers where they talk about the difference between distribution and readership. You sure.
0: Know, yeah. You know,
1: <laughs> yep. one, one newspaper might be read by five different people when you leave it on the counter and the employee sure. break. So sure. Those are numbers <laughs> that, you know, it, it, as, as marketers, we know that there's a, Impressions is a suji number that doesn't really mean anything, but but the classifieds. I mean, when you think back to like the fifties and sixties and seventies, when like you know, big major dailies had like helicopter pads on top of their roof, and they had right. courthrooms in every corner right. of the globe.
0: Ah, the good old days. <laughs> that
1: was coming from those seventy percent profit margins that they were creating on their newspaper pages. They were wow. able to really drive that and. And they got they got fat and um, did not, you know, in the early days, the Internet, the fad, there was, you know, the the mindset of we are the descendants of the gray lady. Like, there's nothing that will stop us. And of course, you know, change is slow until it's not.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I remember, too, you know, being uh, a recent college grad in, in Denver. And opening up the westward and going back to, you know, the back of the westward, because I mean, I graduated from college uh, during the height of the crash, right? So there are no jobs that, that just doesn't exist. I got laid off right out of right after I graduated. Uh, so, you know, opening up the westward and looking uh, for a job in the back of it, in the classifieds. So it's just, it's it's funny how thinking about that is very much this sort of blast from the past that like, even at that point in time, I trusted the Westword over something like Craigslist because the internet felt scary, and like I was going to end up getting murdered in a back alley. I'm not sure why it never occurred to me that that could also happen with the Westword, <laughs> but <laughs> that's uh, that's fascinating. And so, I mean, then you take and I, I also remember like when Facebook advertising really started happening, there was a lot of you know they took their their cues from. Uh, this sort of traditional advertising method in terms of the KPIs that they were looking at, but then went a step further with it. Still though, impressions were a, a big fucking deal like when the this first digital advertising really launched. And I remember trying to uh, fight with clients to come into the digital age and being told like, well, I don't know, the Denver Post can guarantee me a million eyes. on on my newspaper ad. I'm like, how the fuck can they guarantee you that? They cannot do that. And so you have this sort of like speculative nature of like, it's where ad recall lift comes from, right? Like this speculative nature about the connection between uh, the impressions and the action that's now pitted against something very digital, very like we can actually track this kind of thing. So, so we've got Craigslist, everything becomes very digital. And now, I mean, how did, how did newspapers start to navigate that sort of foray into the digital sphere? And how did that, I, did that completely, or did that contribute to eroding things? Or would you say that it modernized it a little bit?
1: both both happened you know there's a lot of experimentation uh how to carve out a space uh digitally um newspapers in a lot of places were like saw it as two different animals you know they'd have a um right. you know the print team and your copy desk and your uh section editors and then you'd have like an interactive editor or a new an internet editor and they would be different teams and they would create silos that would eventually be, cause problems in terms of of one uh inflating budgets instead of deflating budgets and two uh creating disparate experiences that made it feel weird for the user who's like okay is this actually is this you know the 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 publication I'm looking at or is it some other publication because they look different and like what is why is that happening and eventually you start to see things, you know, best practices come to light and data being able to tell people how to do things better and user experience becoming a thing and UI becoming a thing. But uh yeah, it definitely was the Wild West for a solid decade to 15 years, uh, until they started to 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 rein that in. And then, you know, then they start looking at ways to to maximize the dollar. And, you know, pay paywall uh journalism became uh real again and except Instead of the paywall, you know, when you look at a paywall, kind of like a subscription fee, or or you know, dropping a quarter in a machine and pulling out a newspaper, um, where that cost was so nominal and marginal for what you're getting in terms of information, paywall uh, really changes everything, and and I feel like a paywall is a terrible approach to financial feasibility for for a publication.
0: Let me ask you, because I, I most definitely want to talk about paywalls. I think it was it was really the impetus for this conversation in the first place when we first started talking about it. But I am really interested in understanding it because I I mean, personal opinion, not having any real background in journalism, it seems like the the 24-hour news cycle and the the constant need for content, which of course, I mean, was only further uh, compounded on by this move to digital where you have all of these different news sources coming at you from all of these different angles and they've got a lot and the content churn is real obviously like you work in content i've heard your talks about how we're inundated with too much content and all of it is really low quality or the vast majority of it is and so this 24-hour news cycle you know When, when you've got to be the first to break the news and you have to turn out this content all the time, we're often talking about the same story over and over and over again. But you also need to be the first one to get the headline, which contributes, at least in, in, in what I've witnessed to misinformation coming right out the door, which only lends credibility to this sort of fake news mentality. How do you feel like that, that, 24-hour news cycle or the constant churn really contributes to maybe the erosion of trust um how does it connect to a need for for that advertising what does that look like
1: well i don't think in and of itself the 24-hour news cycle is inherently bad i think that that when you know when cnn came along and and really introduced the concept it was it was a powerful idea um that had it place and i think that uh the from a breaking news standpoint it will always have a place and there's always going to be breaking news i think there are also successful organizations that have eschewed that completely you know uh yellow scene which is what i write for actually you know preaches slow news as uh as their approach because it's a monthly glossy you know so you're not going to break anything you know they use the 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 website to uh to do a little bit when something important in in their particular locale happens. But really, it's much more about going deeper than 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 short. You know, it's about sure. uh, the, the angle of the story and why that matters uh, as opposed to now. Sure. And there's plenty of room for that. You know, Mother Jones, Vox, you know, there's a lot of great publications out there that, that look for that depth. And I, I think there's room for both of those things to exist in the space. What there isn't uh, is uh, revenue for everybody uh, on a traditional model anyway. And that's the, 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 the bigger problem is, is as revenue dwindles and newsrooms cut costs that usually happens, you know, first in operations and then at the copy desk or at the editorial desk. And so the fact checkers dwindle, the uh, copy editors dwindle. And as those people who are responsible for the credibility of the publication, whatever level that is, uh, are fewer and more far between, mistakes increase. Just the nature of the beast. Uh, and, as those mistakes increase, then that will erode your credibility uh, quicker than anything.
0: and I would imagine, too, that you know, even if there is a place and and that makes sense, you know, having this breaking news be that sort of place where the twenty four hour news cycle can exist, if you need to fill the twenty four hours and you've got to churn out all the content and you already don't have enough money coming in to support even just a standard level of content. Now the sheer volume of content being produced presents its own set of problems in terms of mistakes and facts that need to be checked uh, and and room for error. But I mean, you know, this was I, I think a question that I'd already sort of had in mind maybe for a little bit later on. How can people, why would people pay for, continue to click on uh, in order to get ads, sources they they can't trust because of that erosion of credibility?
1: yeah they won't um and, and and studies show that all time and time again that like as things like that occur subscriptions you know paywall subscriptions et cetera, drop off but um it's uh i, I think that's in, in the realm of the the problems facing industry that's actually a smaller one from the perspective of credible news outlets, you know, the Mm. Times, uh, you know, and and everyone's going to start poking at the opinion pages, political beds. And by no means is there a perfect publication out there. Let me back up. One of the things I believe uh, is that if you're a journalist today, uh, you went into the field because you do have, uh, you're an idealist who believes in the search for truth and you're passionate about it. Uh, there are a lot of forces working against you. There's, you know, really big corporations uh that like um that that uh can impact that uh from a newsroom's perspective, like Sinclair, you've seen some of the uh controversy surrounding uh their uh their approach to certain things over the years that Absolutely. they've been called out. Yeah. There is a you know, politics are not uh are not avoidable, they exist. But you look at, you know, the, the, the pyramid of, of, uh, sources, uh, you know, that comes together in the middle with the most objective, most balanced and and most credible in the way they float out. And that's usually a pretty good, and I forget who puts that together, if that's Columbia or, um, Mizzou, but, um, that's, that's usually a good place to, to start from when it comes right. to incredible sources. And then, um, the, the greater issue to me is is more about you know because there's the inundation of content is gonna, is never gonna stop it's just gonna keep going faster and and greater but it then it comes down to your reputation it, it comes down to you know of what we choose to cover as a as a news organization do we get it right
0: sure
1: and do we get it right more times than not and how often and um and do we provide the service that journalism is supposed to be providing which is still you know the fourth estate that's the biggest thing to me is that uh somewhere along the line and it probably goes back to you know when the fcc started making rules about how broadcast uh channels could be used and station identification and you know local stations should be doing an hour of news and 24-hour cycle they they didn't say you couldn't charge for it which is probably the mistake at that point you know way back when when these things start uh, becoming uh, kind of codified for how uh, America media is consumed, tying profit to news consumption was it was it was a an experiment that has now failed. It worked great for a long time, but now it's failing, and so the whole model needs to be reexamined because, um, especially when you when it's uh, you've got hedge funds and and um, publicly traded companies. Uh, on board, looking at profits and stock and, and and share prices, which are counter to the point of what journalism is about and what it why it matters.
0: So, really quick before we we continue that sort of paywall discussion, because I, I mean, again, it is it is the thing that, like I said, is the impetus for the conversation in the first place. Can you very quickly, because I'm not really familiar with the term fourth estate. Could you give me a breakdown because I can't imagine that I'm the only person not familiar with? I mean, maybe I am who, who the fuck knows, but, but just, just for my own edification then.
1: Yeah, I think um, I'm looking for the exact quote where it first started. Basically it was um, Europe looked at, and it comes from the, the European uh, mindset of the three estates uh, of, of a European kingdom or realm. The clergy the nobility and the commoners and the fourth uh was to refer to the government separation of powers into into uh those things and in this country you've got the three branches of government sure you know, executive executive and judicial and then the fourth which is the watchdog sure. so to me when you look at a system like the american system which is built on a a system of checks and balances for each one of the different branches. The most important one to me, and it's why, and Jefferson would agree and the framers agreed. And that's why it's in the first amendment is the freedom of the press, because that is the way that you hold, you know, the other three accountable at all times is making sure that the, the public is aware of what is happening. And that's where that, that term is kind of come into a, uh, uh, you know, you American zeitgeist.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about paywalls too, obviously, you know, like I said, at the beginning of this, they're, they're highly irritating for me as a marketer, but also just as a general newsreader and sharer of information overall, I, you know, I'm like the, the digital version of my grandma, like clipping articles out of paper and like sending, like mailing them to my friends and I get foiled by paywalls and I pay for way too many of them just because like I I also have ADHD and I'm like, whatever, let's just like remove this obstacle so that I can finish reading, reading this particular article. I know that like I'm not alone in in this. I know that, you know, I sent you the article on on B Corpse and and you were like, there's a paywall. It was the it was, like I said, the whole impetus for this conversation. And I've always sort of been of the opinion of the opinion, and it sounds like potentially wrongly. That advertising would help eliminate those paywalls. Um, of course, not to make you know advertising sound like some kind of like valiant, always in good faith savior or anything like that. But you know, if the news is only available to those who can afford it, then information that watchdog piece of things is inherently undemocratic. It's class exclusive, and you know, especially when the people who can't get it are the ones who actually need it the most. So you know, basically, advertising is saving democracy. Like, all hail the Davos man. I'm kidding about that, but like, but it is a real problem. So, but I also know, like, we don't like paywalls. News media needs to be able to afford to exist. So, what's the take there?
1: Yeah, uh, the take to me is: is you disband all the paywalls, and you flip to a nonprofit journalism model. Which has been steadily increasing over the years. I think it was a pull this up. There's a Pew Research Center. They did in twenty in twenty twenty two. They did a study and uh, discuss and identified more than eighty nonprofit news outlets covering U.S. state houses, uh, of which nearly half were founded in the last five years. That is, there is a growth in that approach. Colorado's added a few new. Um, Nonprofit uh journalism outlets, Colorado Dependent merged with um the Colorado News Collaborative called Colab. And that mm-hmm. is um that is happening.
0: Denver the, Wright, I know is on that list too, is in Colorado Sun.
1: Colorado Sun, even even the Colorado Times Recorder is actually now in that in that camp. And I think those things are really the only it's what I feel journalism should have been from day one. It's it's a public service. The job of a journalist is to find out the things that are important to the people in his constituency, his or her constituency, and then uh, explain to them why it is important so they can be informed to make better decisions when it comes to uh, who they're going to support for public office and which uh, referendums they're going to support, et cetera. Like, you need the informed public populace to make uh, your community the place you want it to be to live. So it is a public service and as such it should be treated as one with a nonprofit model and that's not a new idea like the Associated Press was founded in what 1846 and it was a nonprofit model since day one there's always been room for that to exist you know NPR Colorado Public Radio public broadcasting system like there's there's always been room but it's also always been an afterthought because in this country you know everything it is based on a capitalist system where, you know, how do you drive profit? And so we have sure. to rethink that model. And to me, the only proven, uh, accessible, uh, and repeatable model that I've seen is nonprofit journalism.
0: Sure, sure. So, I mean, within a nonprofit model, I would imagine that you can't rely. The lion's share of your funding can't be from individual subscribers. Does it come from grants?
1: Well, you know, there's some, there's, there's room for some discussion on that. Um, okay. Example is, so I'm on the board of City Park Jazz,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the board of directors there, and um, the lion's share of our donations come in, come from the donations, come from individual donors. Hmm. KUVO, largely driven by uh, individual donors. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't understate the power of the collective uh, in those Mm -hmm. situations. But I do think, yes, the the next step there is looking at grants and endowments and um, uh, sponsorships. Uh, You know, when you make when you flip it to a nonprofit model and allow uh, and allow the tax breaks to come with the donations and and the involvement with that for corporate corporations to get involved. But honestly, to me, you know, local mom and pops. You know, sidling their name up to to support a cause like uh, local journalism, and having that connection, and building a stronger community. You know, in a roundabout manner, with everybody kind of you know all the, the the rising tide lifting all ships in that area. Uh, so I think that those all those all those things come into play in a nonprofit model.
0: So when you take a look at like funding nonprofit journalism just in general and, and uh, you know, your mom and pop shops, your businesses even, uh, you know, larger scale businesses, I think you and I both know that people should do things for the good of, you know, maintaining democracy. <laughs> but I also think that because, as you you earlier pointed out, everything revolves around profit, What I like, I hate. I hate asking this question, Mm -hmm. but as a realist who works in this space as well, like, what's in it for them?
1: Content, better content, hopefully trusted content, hopefully credible content. The acknowledgement that you are helping to separate or, or or delineate that separation of church and state between corporate profits and and news. One of the common things uh, I hear from from everyone, left and right sides of the political spectrum, is you can't trust X publication because you know that they're owned by X corporation and everything they do is is driven by that. And I, you know, and that's it's not always true. I mean, it's true to an extent in certain places, but like you know, there was uh, when I was at the Rocky, never got a call from Scripps, uh, our parent company, yelling at. What we could and couldn't put on the page, maybe rare, rare, rare situations, or maybe a, a a heated discussion between the publisher and the, uh, and, the and the editors. But the idea of um, of being aligned with uh, real democratization of of journalism, of news, and supporting your community does resonate. I mean, and you see it, you see it with uh, the fact that. The network of nonprofit news organizations has been steadily growing, from you know, going back to the the Texas Tribune, which was one of the bigger pioneers in the earlier days, about fifteen years ago, to uh, you know, well over you know several hundred that exist across the country today. and it's growing. so i I, I do believe that uh, while it sounds like it might be too altruistic a mindset for the American public to gravitate towards. I actually believe that um the the results are playing out as such that we could see real successes there as people continue to go down that path
0: so not to put too fine a point on it, but I mean, what's in it for for businesses in the short term
1: well it's it still becomes a, a advertising an opportunity for advertising for them you know when you when you're listening to uh NPR you know this this traffic report brought to you by, you know, so and so organization, et cetera. So there's still the 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 connection there uh, in a in a nonprofit model like uh, like the Colorado, like CoLabs or uh, the Texas Tribune or the Sun. You know, there's still advertising happening, uh, and that that advertising is just shifted to a nonprofit approach where everything you know you're not you're not driving shares, you're not driving profit. Everything's going back into the business. So those models will still exist. Sure. Uh, you're still going to get the, the the advertising out that you need to do. And the other side of that is, is aligning yourself with the message of, of whatever it is that that publication kind of stands for when it comes to your community and your involvement there.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, also, I would imagine there's a write-off inside of there as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. This seems like, yeah, it's it's a model that then eliminates, you know, if you're eliminating the paywall, you don't eliminate the echo chamber, but the, the content is accessible to everybody regardless of whether or not they're able to pay for it. But I know that you've also mentioned that like these paywalls, uh, you know, we've talked about sort of like the right model, the path that we should be going down but i know that you mentioned when we talked earlier about like not all news outlets and i'm for you know those of you not watching uh i have this in air quotes uh not all news outlets are using any form of paywall you know places that have a tendency to be more let's call them extremist and really problematic especially for riling up an echo chamber base places like Breitbart places like the uh Daily Wire is that the the one uh
1: Newsmax uh Infowars
0: yeah uh uh-huh oh yeah these places don't have paywalls and I know that that was something that that is obviously like near and dear to your heart in terms of talking about why this is such a fucking problem. Uh, you know, I want to give you some space to to talk about that and what we're up against here as well.
1: Yeah. It drives me absolutely fucking batty. You know, you see uh, the fact that, okay, people can go to, to, to these news sources, even, you know, from a once considered somewhat legitimate publication like Fox News to Breitbart to Daily Caller to... Infowars to Newsmax to OAN, you know these uh, outlets are all without payroll pay paywall, so people can go there and get all the content they want and for free, regardless of how accurate that content is. But then, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Denver Post or the Washington Post, like these are under a paywall. So more legitimate news publications, and I'll have that argument with anyone who wants to, who's going to say. Oh, those are all, you know, yes, they are more legitimate news publications than Newsmax and Infowars and OAN. period. They're charging. So people aren't going to go there and pay, you know, for what they're providing. So you've got a populace that is slowly being, you know, driven along with the Overton window to the right with their sources of information and and complete misinformation uh, mouthpiece that 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 represents these kinds of you know publications is the best term we can get and and it takes away from legitimacy and 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 creates you know a lot of the problems we've had when it comes to uh misinformation and disinformation in the in in the American culture in over the last fifteen years sure. hard it drives me nuts
0: well, and that accessibility is uh It feels like a constant negotiation these days, you know, and this uh, this is this is another point that I wanted to be able to discuss is like the media in general seems to be in a a state of constant dependence on other institutions for its survival. And, you know, not just individuals, obviously, Uh, I, I think that we know that I not just I think that we know we do know that over a third of Americans get their news primarily from Facebook, for instance. And so you've got these publications that are really reliant on getting that message out there. And of course, if some of them, if the more legitimate ones are under a paywall and then the less legitimate, uh, less fact-checked, more extremist ones are not, obviously that accessibility is is a factor in what information gets to whom and how many. But also when we're reliant, when the news media is reliant upon these platforms for dissemination. Uh, what happens when when that relationship changes? You know, for instance, in Mark Zuckerberg's uh, tireless efforts to avoid responsibility for anything at all, he's now entertaining the elimination of publishers from the platform entirely, saying that publishers actually, it's the publishers that brought about. The downfall of democracy, and not the algorithm, right? It's so if we just get rid of the publishers, then maybe maybe we're in the clear, or like Twitter, you know, they're back when when I worked really closely with Twitter before everything uh, recently. Uh, you know, the the colloquial way that Twitter referred to themselves, they're like sort of not just internal. I mean, a, a pretty well known tagline is Twitter is where news breaks, right? Mm-hmm. That's That was their big claim to fame. They couldn't get a handle on a lot of other things, but that was where people were breaking news. And now that platform is descended, you know, to the depths of the the Elon stands. So the audience is rapidly changing there as well. So like when we're talking about accessibility and how media can reach who it needs to, what happens when publishers either don't have access to the platforms where people are or they don't have the audience that's actually on the platform anymore? Right.
1: And that's, you know, it's, it's a, you're being uh, too generous to Zuckerberg. He's uh, <laughs> trying to try avoid uh, responsibility because it's really, it's the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act that's driving. His uh, his real fear. That's
0: right. That's right. That's right.
1: Because yeah, now it's that that's suggesting you know, or hopefully, the goal of that bill is try to codify allowing uh, publications to negotiate with distribution platforms of a certain size, of which really it's Facebook and uh, and Twitter. So for him, it's 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 a money thing. That being said, it's still problematic. And and they've been, you know, if you look at the way that, that Facebook has throttled publication uh just being the ability to share an article uh from you know, they, they throttle the shit out of that unless uh you want to pay for a boost or you know, the, the publication wants to uh pay to play. And that's just gotten more and more draconian over the years. So that's already a thing. I think that. I, I I'm not a fan of the idea that well, my jury's still out on the idea that um, forcing Facebook or and/ or Twitter to provide some level of their profits to the publications and how that's going to look and and who gets the share of those pie and and it, that seems really like a really deep black hole to go into. You know, it, they could look at some kind of like an ASCAP cap or a BMI, a model where you know everything just goes into a big pot and then you know there, there's a someone spitting out the data at the end of the day of how many times uh, a particular article shared and that gets you know royalties like like in the music industry with spotify or whatever which as we all know is not is is not a significant enough amount of money to, to turn anyone's head right so i don't know that that's really the right the right approach from uh from from a congress perspective but your point being uh valid in that uh the channels of google facebook and twitter being the distribution network for news uh, of any sort are significant and it will be problematic if uh they take their ball and go home that's that that's going to impact uh, the distribution channel for every individual publication, uh, at a, at a significant level. So how does how does that reconcile itself? Well, um, then you you know you go back to the days, you know the early days pre Facebook and Twitter when people were going to those outlets specifically or creating their own RSS feeds, or you know, I guess like you look again at a Drudge Report, although I I don't know if Drudge Report would would <laughs> consider. <laughs> you know as that but that approach you know,
0: right right just approach. just a name i haven't i haven't thought about in you know I, i'm happy that i haven't thought about it in a really long time right <laughs> you know i used to be a huge fan i used to read that shit all the time
1: well you know it, there was uh something to be said for uh the, the curation of uh, yeah, I just had to go look because I haven't even looked at the page in forever and see if he was doing anything unusual. No, it looks exactly the same.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I mean, when you got a formula that works, I guess.
1: <laughs> yep. No, he's he's still doing he's, yeah, nothing has changed. Uh but yeah, you know, you'll you'll find curation models, I guess, out there. And um if it's not a subscription, like I I I'd have to read the uh journalism competition and and Preservation Act closer that I have uh, for how they um how they define uh, the networks that this act would impact,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and and it has to do with the amount of members. So if it was a an open thing where there's no membership, then yeah, you I imagine you'll see some large uh, curated sites in the mindset or in a similar approach to it, what Drudge was doing is doing pop up. You know, you'll you'll see you'll see a, a pivot. You, you know, whenever there's a, whenever there's a huge uh, shift in in something that's driven either by legislation or by by trend or popularity, you'll see a shift in a response to that. It's just a, what does that look like? It's hard to tell without you know, without a crystal ball.
0: Right, right. It's interesting to think about because I know, like from our perspective, we we send out a, a newsletter weekly and. Uh, thinking about like, yeah, I mean, we'd love to to be a source of curation. And I imagine you've got more curation that will pop up, but what is the financial incentive for them to do so? Uh, mm-hmm. Because I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I think we all know like that we're just living in late stage capitalism and like, this is just what's going to happen. So not necessarily advocating that there needs to be a, a financial motivator for it, but yeah, I can see places being like, well, what's in it for me to be able to preserve the news? Just because that's how a lot of people think, regardless. Well, I... uh i want I want to wrap up uh, this particular part of the conversation. Uh, before I do, I mean, are there any sort of like parting ideas that you you want to make sure that you get off your chest about about just the the state of news media in general and how it relates to uh, things like paywalls, marketing, advertising, et cetera?
1: Hmm. Obviously, I think as we we explored ad nauseum, we are in a in a crossroads. Uh, we are at a crossroads when it comes to uh, how journalism is going to move forward. Uh, and and what I can't overstate is the importance of the industry uh, and of the practice, I should say, maybe not the industry, but the practice of journalism. sure. And that is, I think if if i could if I could beseech everyone to pay attention to really understand why media matters to you and find a publication find a non-profit publication and, and and subscribe become a member donate those are the things that i would like i i'd really want to i guess hammer home is is everyone find a way to get a little piece of of that particular pie in their lives and and recognize its importance because when when you lose the the independent voice of media, uh fascism is just on its heels
0: absolutely absolutely uh it actually you know giving that recommendation for for how people can take action sort of dovetails nicely into how we like to be able to to wrap up the segments anyway is almost like somebody prepared you for for what you were supposed to to bring to the table today uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know in today's world we're so incessantly overwhelmed with uh new bad things to feel newly bad about and it gets to be a little defeating just in general i know i have personally felt completely fucking defeated and broken a lot in the last few years just being inundated with things like what what the fuck can i even do to change this like is this just how things are so we do like to offer those action items for people. like what can why why should people give a shit and what can they actually do about it? So that the conversations that we're having on this podcast aren't just these ivory tower thought exercises. So you know, you're saying that in terms of what can people do, you know, right now tomorrow, this week, next week, you sound it sounds like finding a publication and supporting it financially. What can you, people do from from a business perspective? If they're putting on their, you know, this is a business marketing podcast, technically, uh, if they're putting on their business marketing hats, how can they, knowing that, you know, we're not just talking about executive leaders who are making financial business decisions to be able to back nonprofit journalism but uh, we may be talking to people who are a lot more boots on the ground team members that maybe don't make those decisions. How can they uh, think from their business perspective about how to make an impact? Why why they should care and what they can do about it?
1: Well, I think um, the writing on the wall is pretty clear in that cause-based marketing has a foothold and uh, and is growing. I think that from millennial, definitely to the Zoomer perspective, that um that cause-based marketing me is meaningful uh so when you get the opportunity to align yourself with a message that maybe uh isn't uh as clinical as what you're used to taking that opportunity is a good thing for the brand so you know in 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 a world where we would hope everyone is a part of a purpose-driven brand where where you know people are looking at the opportunity to um, align themselves with messaging that means something. The opportunity to do so with uh, a nonprofit journalism, but and even even with decent publications that have credibility, uh, should be something that should be looked at, and not just okay, not just in a matter of how many conversions I'm going to get for X, but you know, from your awareness play, here's a great place for you not only to create awareness for your brand, but to create a awareness for what your brand stands for.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: if you could take that uh, opportunity when it presents itself uh, and, and understand that, yeah, it's um it's an awareness play, but it, it does mean something to, to the general constituency out there. I think that would be a good place to, uh, to evaluate for sure.
0: Sure. And it sounds like too, if you're you know, in charge of curating content uh, to be able to send out to an audience, to be able to try to curate from nonprofit sources as well, uh, that could be you know, uh, another way for people to just be more cognizant of the, the sources that you're sharing. Obviously, I mean, like I said at the, the start of this, you never want to send a reader to a paywall just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, take some of the 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 bigger names that we know and and go smaller, familiarize yourself with what else is out there in terms of nonprofit sources that are legitimate, that are credible, uh, that you can share news from as well.
1: Yeah, amplification is huge. And that's a yeah. that's a fantastic point.
0: So I got one last thing for you. Uh, as you know uh, our podcast we really try to center around some of these hard and, and necessary conversations about responsible ethical sustainable marketing and business uh you know like I said we we're living in late stage capitalism we know that ethical consumption might not be possible but I also personally like to think of ethics as a spectrum. I think it's something that's a little bit more attainable. I think also we've never really decided on an ethical framework that is universal. It's why there are so many different ethicists that that espouse so many different ethical frameworks. So thinking of ethics as a spectrum that we are able to be slightly more ethical by doing certain things, uh, that's what we want to do. And that's, that means that these conversations are about making, pe- making sure that people who work in these spaces can do it better. They can do it more responsibly, more ethically, et cetera. And uh, I personally think the way that that gets done is about centering our humanity, just remembering that we are all humans. We're not automatons who are sending out Uh, sending out ads automatically. We're not robots. That way we can choose our sources. We can choose how we do things and doing things better. But also for our audience, we're not metrics on a dashboard. We're humans. So uh, what we do to try and center that humanity a little bit is uh, we're aspiring to ask people a little bit about their own humanity and uh, acknowledging uh, first and foremost that all humans make mistakes. It's something that I know you and I both belong to. Uh, a Facebook group wherein it is all marketers, and uh, there tends to be a lot of conversation about people who fucked up, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, we see a lot of justifiable criticism around some of these fuck ups and why they're really a problem, and and arguments around like, is this just a mistake? Is this something that really needs to be examined? And so I think that you know it's easy for us to have for you and me to sit here to have these big conversations and and sound like we think we're the best and most ethical people, right? But we do all make mistakes and we do learn in public. And we didn't just arrive at the conclusions that we're having today or arrive at the the right, quote unquote, right way to be uh, for all of this. We all make mistakes. We all learn in public. So uh, that's why we would like to know, Dave, tell us. What is uh what is your big human moment? What is the, the biggest mistake you ever made on the job and what you learned from it?
1: Um the the one that sticks out to me. Well, I, I there's a couple of things. One's more of a philosophical mindset, and one was actual just a cold hard fast mistake. But um, I'll start with that one. So when I was uh just getting started as a music writer. um, We'd had, uh, we'd had this conversation in the office. We were talking about Jethro Tull, who was coming to town and people in the office uh, had referred to Jethro Tull as though Ian Anderson was Jethro Tull. Like there was no, they didn't like it. happens. It's been, it's a, it's a running gag for years. And so I wrote my piece from that perspective satirically that week without setup and without having done a satirical piece before (laughs) so all it seemed that the the music writer for for the weekly was just a complete moron (laughs) no idea what he was writing about for calling jethro toll for calling ian Ian anderson jethro toll um, so I just got ripped up one side and down the other, like, you know, letters and phone calls of people who are just, you know, and, and, and I was like, well, try to be clever and it did not work. It's and importance
0: uh, of context.
1: <laughs> completely lost. And yeah, I own that. That was me. That was my mistake to, to do it that way. Um, and the other thing I'd say from a philosophical standpoint is, uh The only time I've regretted a decision I've made uh, from a from a from a professional perspective is when I've really chased the money. and that's um, the, the biggest mistakes in my choices of career have been chasing money. And so I stopped doing that and um, and the money comes. I still make good money, but chase, using money as a deciding factor has never been a good choice for me, and that's that's always resulted in that. Probably the wrong decision
0: what do you focus on now instead?
1: everything else culture uh, you know what's the work I'm doing is the work something I'm interesting interested in doing uh, who are the people that I'm working with? Uh, do I like them are they likable you know I, I learned a long time ago that I can do anything I need to I can hustle I can make a living doing what I need to do as long as I can deal with the human beings I got to work with every day so culture culture and 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 the human side of that are, I think, the more important factors to me. If I can, I'd much rather make less and enjoy the day than make more and be miserable
0: at the end of the day. Sure. Yeah, I can completely understand and agree with that. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for tuning into Target Snarket, a weekly podcast brought to you by Broad Digital Consulting. Our podcast is hosted by Danielle Bilbrecht, Kaylee Myers, and Owen Connolly, and produced by Margo Gill. You can always learn more about Broad Digital Consulting on our website, broad.digital. That's B-R-O-A-D.digital or you can find us on social media using the handle at Target Snarket. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And if you're feeling so inclined, we'd love for you to review our pod if you like what you're hearing.